0: Amen. So we turn again to Galatians uh, to read of this one true gospel. Galatians chapter 3 will be our passage this morning, verses 1 to 5. Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the word of God for God's people today. You may be seated, and let's pray now and ask for God's help. Father, we gather together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We continue to gather because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we long to persevere in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so grant us the grace we need to keep our eyes fixed on our Savior, that we would never move on from the gospel, that we would walk each day in the power of the Spirit, by faith, living in Christ-in-me lives, and doing so for your glory. So teach us this day how to do just that. Give us the grace to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus now and forevermore so that our mouths might forever sing your praise in your presence. And do so, we ask this day, for the glory of your name, amen. When I was a senior in high school, a couple friend, uh, friends and I uh, decided we would go off campus for lunch. Uh, The only problem was that wasn't allowed. Uh, We didn't have open lunches So we snuck off to my car and shot off for pizza And our plan was to sneak back in as uh, everyone was getting back uh, From cafeteria and gym and all the stuff and the halls were filled with people We'd sneak back in and get into class and no one would be the wiser Uh, Which was pretty easy back then because i'm so old Uh, That there wasn't cameras or security officers or, you know, teachers also didn't want to watch us during their break So it was fairly easy. I'm not saying that makes it right kids. Don't do what I did, you know, do what you're supposed to do Uh, But it would have worked out if not for the pizza taking longer than it should have And so by the time we were racing back to school almost there uh, Everyone was back in class. So we went to my house uh, to wait out this class period Uh, and then hopefully show back up when everyone was switching classes again and just pray that the uh, attendance officer wouldn't realize we were there all morning, then not there, then there again, magically, right? As Soon as we walked in the door to my house, the phone rang and the caller ID showed the school office. And so we immediately walked right back out, got in my car, went to my other friend's house. Right when we walked into that door, what happened? The phone rang and what did the caller ID say? the school office. So we're like, we're uh, there, they know. So we're going to my other friend's house, and we're just gonna pray they stop following us, right? And uh, we get to there, uh, this third friend's house, not right after we walked in, but soon after the phone rang, and it was the school office. Uh, and we knew his parents wouldn't show back up till after dinner, so we stayed there and said, okay, we're just We're just going to skip the rest of school day, but we'll get back before football practice because, you know, we'll skip class but not football. And just pray the principal is not waiting for us when we arrive. Uh, at the end of the day. He wasn't waiting, so we got our pads on and head out to the field thinking we pretty much got away with it. We get through warm-ups. My coach isn't doing anything. We start going through offense. I was the center. One of my f- skipping friends was the quarterback, and we we're going through our drills at the beginning of practice. I snap the ball, and all of a sudden, my coach appears out of nowhere and says with me and my skipping quarterback friend in, uh, right there, says, you idiots. And I was like, that was a pretty great snap, so I'm pretty sure he's not talking about my mechanics. And he he just, like, stopped us, took us both by the face mask, because that was also legal back then, and just started shaking us and going, you idiots, what were you thinking? And I was like, oh boy, you know, here we go. Now, he just told us to never again not use our brains and threatened our lives if we didn't. But we never got in trouble, never got detention. We even played in the game that Friday night. Still to this day, don't know how we did not My mom never found out. My dad, I mean, now they probably will. But, uh, well, you you know, and everybody else. But I never, never got in trouble for it. And my coach never said anything again. Only he said, don't be an idiot. And every time I think of someone doing something stupid, even though they know better, I think of that time when my coach appeared out of nowhere and said, you idiots. It always comes to mind. And it doesn't often come to mind when I read the Bible, but it does when we get to Galatians chapter 3. And Paul begins his argument with, oh foolish Galatians. Because if you read some of the other translations that are a little bit more free and not as literal, like J.B. Phillips's Uh, They always uh, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time uh, The more modern translations translate this you idiots which I was gonna uh, Entitle this sermon by that, but we we gave it a little bit better one But deep down in the internal uh, records, it will always be known as the you idiots sermon Because that's what paul says It's not that they lacked understanding Or that they didn't know better. It's that they did know and chose to do something in the opposite direction. I knew I shouldn't skip out on school. I was raised to not skip out on school. But I thought, hey, let's try something stupid. And I did it anyways. It's foolish. And similarly, the Galatians had heard Paul preach the one true gospel that wasn't conjured up by him or anyone else, but it was divinely revealed. And then it was proclaimed by God's divinely appointed apostle. And then Paul says, not only that, the gospel was humanly approved when the Jerusalem apostles didn't add anything to the gospel. And not only that, it proved out again when Peter was acting in opposition to it. This is the one true gospel, which is why Paul is astonished in chapter 1 that the Galatians will so quickly desert or abandon the gospel for a gospel that's no gospel at all. And they did so because this group known as the Judaizers had come in after Paul left and preached this gospel of justification by works centered on circumcision and food laws. And so the central issue in the letter of Galatians is how does God save sinners? How does God save sinners? Is it by works of the law or by hearing with faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not by anything they do. God does not save sinners by anything they do. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Now, just look up in the section before this, in chapter 2, verse 16. That's why Paul says, We know that a person is not justified, saved, made righteous, declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's only by Jesus' perfect life and sufficient death that sinners are declared righteous, justified in God's sight, as the Spirit then unites them when they hear by faith to Jesus. So by turning away from Jesus for that righteousness, sinners need to be saved, and doing so when the false teachers proclaimed a false gospel, the Galatians are in danger of abandoning their only hope of salvation. Because in fact, they're nullifying the cross. They're erasing it. They're making it worthless, meaningless, of no value. They're nullifying the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if righteousness could come uh, through works, then Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are unnecessary. They've nullified it. And that's why Paul begins chapter 3 at such a loss for how they got to this point. And begins by basically saying, you're idiots. What are you doing? Snap out of it. Who has bewitched you? You know better, but you've, you've strayed off. You've been mesmerized, hypnotized, it, it are synonyms to that word there. What's gotten into you? Snap out of it. Have you uh, ever seen uh, Disney's Aladdin? The villain Jafar has this staff that he would stick in people's faces and its eyes would start to spin and it would bewitch the people who were, had this you know, serpent staff in view and it would do his bidding. They're bewitched. They know better, but yet the spell has come over them and they're acting in complete opposition to what they really know. If you don't like Disney movies, that's okay. Here's an illustration for you. You know when two people look each other in the face for the first time and they're like, you know, like, that's my life. I will marry this person, right? And all of a sudden, young men start doing things that they've never done before in their life to impress this person. And, you know, the young ladies who've never been, you know, worried about this or that or thinking about guys, all of a sudden they're like, and you're like, what has gotten into you? like, you used to do this, now you're like this. It's the same thing. You've been mesmerized, hypnotized by something in view. And this word is the only time it's used in the New Testament, bewitched. And we see why Paul chose it in his next sentence. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That word portrayed uh, is something akin to like a billboard we have when you drive down I-75. This thing that fills up your view and portrays a message. Paul's preaching like that filled up their view with Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, your eyes beheld this. This power that is God's power to save sinners. And that power was unleashed when Jesus Christ and him crucified was billboarded in your eyes, or before your eyes, the eyes of faith. You beheld it. You've, these people have come in and have basically taken your eyes and shifted it off of the only hope of salvation to this other thing they've stuck in your face, and you're mesmerized by it. You're hypnotized by it. You're acting like an idiot because you know better, and yet you're doing something different. Snap out of it. The righteousness that sinners need, the righteousness God demands to save sinners, that central issue in Galatians, could never come from us or through us, but only in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. And that message was billboarded in front of you. Why did you take your eyes off of it? And if that's the central issue in Galatians, how does God save sinners... Then the central message of Galatians is the gospel of the God-man, Jesus Christ's, substitutionary, sufficient, sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. That's the whole point, and everything else flows from it from Galatians. How does God save sinners? Through Jesus's sufficient, sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. It's substitutionary because it was in our place that Jesus stood condemned and bore our sins. It was not his sin nor his place. He stood in our place and bore our sins. It was sacrificial because the penalty of sin is death. And Jesus shed his blood to pay sin's death penalty. And it is sufficient because Jesus' blood pays in sin's death penalty in full accomplishing his people's complete salvation. So it's not a potential or partial salvation that needs adding to it to become an actual salvation. Jesus saves. Not a potential savior, not a partial savior. He's the savior, which is why he cried out on the cross, it is finished, because there's nothing left for sinners to do to add to it. To be saved. It's done. There's no box checked or left for you to check off. It's not like he did 99 and you do the last one. It, you know, when you've taken those tests, talk about school, high school days. Remember when you filled in those things, you know, with a number two pencil and you, your teacher's like, make sure you fill in the whole thing or else it might not count. You know, it's not like you get, like Jesus fills it almost all the way and even you have to put the last pencil point in one of those circles for it to become an actual salvation he finished it it's done there's nothing left for sinners to do because god alone saves sinners by grace alone through faith alone in jesus alone and when paul kicks off this letter to the galatians he's so caught up in all this that at the end of verse 5 he says to whom be the glory forever and ever amen that's the gospel And Paul says, I billboarded Jesus Christ crucified as the power of God for salvation. And the Spirit gave you you the eyes of faith to behold Him and believe in Him. And the Spirit united you to Him. Then when I left, these guys came in with their sideshow and their bells and whistles and this false gospel, and you're foolishly deserting your only hope of salvation. Which is the summary of my first point. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's point number one if you're note-taking. There's, there's only two points. That's the first one. Look to Jesus. That's why Paul says, you got your eyes off Jesus, and you started acting like idiots. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Looking, trusting, hoping in anything other than Jesus for righteousness and salvation abandons your only hope of the gospel. Get off the abandoning path. Look to the billboard of Jesus Christ. As the student ministries pastor here, when I first came to Five Points, uh, when we took the students anywhere, uh, I always reminded them of our expectations of, our, of their behavior when we were out. And rule number one was don't be an idiot, which now you know where that came from, from my coach grabbing my face mask and scaring me, saying, don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Now, maybe that sounds harsh to you, and maybe that's why I'm not the youth pastor anymore. (laughs) But all joking aside, rather than having 50 rules, I thought that one really covered a lot of ground. You know, like, what would Jesus do? You know, for, for junior high and high school kids, it, it's pretty easy to say, if you're thinking about doing something, ask yourself, would that be something an idiot would do? And if the answer is yes, just don't do it. Just, just don't do it. That's a pretty easy rule. Not just for kids, but for adults too. Me included, right? It's very easy for us to start just straight, even though we know better. And five points, rule number one, to never hear, oh, foolish, five points is to never stop looking to Jesus. Never stop looking to Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And outside of Christ, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's only death. There's only a hamster wheel that will grind you down into nothing until it leaves nothing left of you and you die. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no life. There's no rest. There's just death. But in Christ, Paul says at the end of chapter 2, we die to the power of sin and law. We're free. And we're now alive to God, not by works of the law, but through faith in in Jesus by the Spirit. And the Galatians then got in trouble, not because they didn't know information about the true gospel. They could, most likely, just like Peter, which is why I think Paul inserts that illustration in Peter in chapter 2, say, they probably would have passed the theological litmus test. What's the gospel? And we would have got it right, except they walk out on a Monday morning and start living in complete opposition to it. They got in trouble not because they didn't know all the right things or have all the information or couldn't check theological boxes. They got in trouble when they took their eyes off Jesus. And the daily fight of faith begins for everyone, whether it's your first day in faith in Jesus or your 10,000th day in faith in Jesus. You start each day in this fight for faith by looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's point number one. And the daily fight of faith continues by looking to Jesus. It begins and continues. So point number two, you could tell I'm, I'm very creative this week. Point number one, look to Jesus. Point number two, keep looking to Jesus. Sometimes I need very simple, <laughs> simple points too. We don't need to be creative. We just need to not be idiots. Look to Jesus and just don't Stop. However you want to put number two, don't stop, keep looking, keep your eyes fixed, whatever whatever helps you. But the point of Paul is to keep looking to Jesus. And he helps us do that. He equips us to keep looking to Jesus by first reminding them of their experience in verse two, their experience. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by hearing with faith? He says, close your eyes and remember when I first came to you and and." You received the Spirit. How did that happen? By doing things or by hearing with faith? And in evangelicalism today, some view emotions as dangerous and unreliable. And that view is usually an overreaction to the emotionalism of other corners of evangelicalism or the Christian church in general, and these, and then, which then leads people to base their view of themselves their self-worth, their identity, their relationship with God, and then justify their actions all on how they feel on past experiences. But both extremes are unbiblical. The Psalms are full of feel language and show us how biblically to use it. The Psalms are full of personal experiences. Jesus felt things deeply. The Psalms help us know how to work through those things because it's the authority of God's Word which is the lens to which we submit our emotions and experience without erasing them. And by the way, there's a really great book um, from Crossway by Brian Borgman, a a pastor out west, called Feelings and Faith. It it keeps these in tension that we don't have to erase our feelings or gloss over experiences, but how does God teach us in, as image bearers, people made in his image, to view and how do we submit our emotions and experience without erasing them? And that's exactly what Paul does here in verse 2. He appeals to experience, which might surprise some of you. Paul, the apostle, doesn't first go to, you know all these things, he doesn't first say, let's go back and let's do a summary of the biblical theology of salvation. Here in chapter 3, after calling them foolish, he appeals to their experience. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Close your eyes and remember what happened when I preached the gospel. What happened? When you heard with faith, you received the Holy Spirit. Now that little phrase, uh, what we, we can define that by going, back a couple verses to chapter 2, verse 20. What does it mean to receive the Spirit? I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think that's synonym For receive the Spirit. Christ now lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith. That's receiving the Spirit in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which means if you are trusting in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you have the Holy Spirit. You've received it. It's a gift. It has marked you off as part of the people of God. That powerful presence of God's Spirit, which manifests itself by uniting you to Jesus, is what it means to receive the Spirit. In other words, uh, receive the Spirit is New Testament conversion language. Paul is not talking about, in this instance, whether the uh, um, more miraculous Spirit gifts still continue today or if they've ceased. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the experience everyone has when God saves them. How do you know God has saved you? He pours out his holy spirit on you. Christ comes to live in you. The promise of God with us in the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit is how that promise is fulfilled. God with us by the Holy Spirit. We have been made his temple because we've received the spirit. He gifts that. It's a re- you receive it. You don't earn it. It's given. It is a gift. When God makes you alive to Jesus. And it's then the fuel of that daily life in Jesus. As it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And I'll just point you back to that sermon a couple weeks ago, before Christmas now, uh, about, about Galatians 2 verse 20. And so Paul basically points back to this conversion experience and asks, did that happen because you got circumcised or obeyed food laws? Is that when you received the Spirit? Or when Jesus Christ was billboarded before your eyes and you heard and the Spirit granted you faith and repentance, is that when you received the Spirit? By hearing with faith. And Paul's question just obliterates the false teacher's gospel, right? It obliterates it. He's asking rhetorical questions that are so obvious that he is destroying the Judaizers' argument. They're arguing that to be part of God's people, okay, sure, you need faith. We're not going to argue that. You need faith in Jesus. But you also need works of the law. It's, Jesus is not enough, in other words. And Paul responds, okay, let's just let's play devil's advocate for a moment. If that's true, then why, when you heard the gospel as uncircumcised Gentiles eating bacon and beheld then in those moments with the eyes of faith Jesus crucified, and you heard with faith, meaning you trusted in Jesus. Why then did you receive the Spirit? Which is synonym to being part of the people of God. If you got into the people of God, and the proof was you got the Holy Spirit, and you did that, not by works of the law, but by hearing by faith, then why now? are you not continuing on in faith? You see his argument? If faith alone isn't enough to be part of God's people, in other words, if you need something more than faith to become part of God's people, how in the world did you receive the Spirit? That's Paul's argument. He's like, okay, let's just let's say these guys are right for a second. We'll grant them their presence, that you need this plus this. Well, then why? Why? In the first moment, when you heard Jesus Christ crucified and you believed because of the Spirit, did you receive the Spirit? You were made part of God's people. It's a rhetorical question because it has an obvious answer, since they received the Spirit by hearing with faith and not by works of the law. And if that's true, then works of the law have nothing to do with becoming part of God's people. Which is, Paul, if you are following along here, it's just He just keeps repeating his argument as he's been in the first two chapters, right? This is chapter 2, verse 16, just said in a different way. They receive the Spirit, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith, because justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And, and you see just Paul's pleading heart when he starts laying this out for them, but it's really pointed and strong language, isn't it? He says, let me ask you only this. Let me ask you only this. I'm sure none of you have ever done anything like, like skipping school like I did. But just pretend with me for a moment. that At some point in your life, you did something that was like beyond reason. And you got caught. And when your parent or someone picked you up and you sat down in the front seat of the car and you get in, you click your... And before, you know the person puts it in a drive they like fake it you know they're like you know let me let me just ask you one thing have you ever been in that situation just just explain to me just one thing that's 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 what paul's doing here he's like please explain to me how you in all the stupidity things you could choose to do chose this and he's just grabbing their heads because their eyes have been turned onto this mesmerizing false gospel he's trying to snap them out of it so he's pulling his head back and he's like snap out of it let me ask you just one thing the kind of question that's not really a question because the answer is so obvious the question is really a statement which is why Paul then pulls the classic preacher move and not only just asks one question, which he literally just said, let me ask you one thing, and then he asks four questions in rapid succession. That's like the preacher who says, all right, now in conclusion, and then goes on for like 14 more minutes, and you're like, this is not the conclusion, and my lunch is ready. That's, that, that's Paul. But, not exactly. Because he says, let me ask you one question. One question. And then these four questions are all the same type of questions. They're driving home to one answer, the obvious answer. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then we'll see them in just a moment, these four rapid-fired questions before they could even get an answer out of their mouth, because the the answer is obvious. The gospel is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's also the pathway of the Christian life. And he's like, you know this. You know Jesus Christ is all. He's the end. He's everything. How did you get to the point where you stopped living like that? The gospel's not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the pathway of the Christian life. So Paul goes in on them. He's just like, you're sitting in the front seat. He's got his hand on the driver, you know, on the... The gear shift or whatever that thing's called. And, you know, like, you can't go anywhere, so you're just stuck listening to him, and here we go. It's like, let me ask you one thing. Before you can even get the answer out of your mouth, he starts going. Have you Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, if your life in Christ began by the Spirit's powerful work and not yours, are you now going to live the Christ-lives-in-me life on your strength? on the basis of your doing? If your doing couldn't even start you on the path, how in the world do you think it's gonna keep you on it and get you to the end? You're not not thinking. (laughs) You're not thinking. You're mesmerized by something. Your heart's been captured by something. And this, by the way, is one of the greatest temptations in the Christian life. To, in some measure, trust in self. And you might be on the spectrum of it. And the pendulum might swing back and forth a little bit. But if Satan can't get you to abandon Jesus, you know what he likes to do? He likes to think you can saddle up right next to him and help him. to take you out of that position that we started the service off with as needy people in an ash heap. The lowly, who can't do anything for themselves, who think, okay, well maybe I can get to my knees or maybe I can start standing and then God raises up the humble from the ash heap. The ash heap means there's nothing, like all around is devastation and death and God reaches down and plucks you out of it. He does not need your help to do it. And if that's how everything starts in this life in Jesus, then how do you think your, you could help or anything you do would help you stay on the path or get you to the end? And another, another mistake here that is, can be made, I don't know if often made, but can be made, is the mistake that you think this means you can live however you want because you, you, you got grace, Okay, so if, I don't, if doing doesn't save me and doing doesn't keep me and doing doesn't get me to the end, well then, doing doesn't matter. But Paul will talk about what marks the life of those who receive the Spirit in chapter 5. And he talks about it in Ephesians 2 after the glorious message of the gospel by grace. He says, God saved you so that you would walk in the good works He prepared beforehand Before you got saved Not you do them and then you get saved But because I saved you You will walk in these good works Same thing Paul is going to do in chapter 5 You receive the spirit And then there's fruit of it The works don't mean you're part of God's people Or gain you entry into God's people But it flows through you Because you're part of God's people So don't make that mistake either It's not that good works have no place In the Christian life but rather that good works don't gain us entry into God's people and they don't keep us as God's people. And so to try to live the Christ in me life by the flesh is foolishness. Having begun, are you now going to try and finish on your own? It's like when Owen was two or three years old in the yard and I would go out and be doing some project and uh, he would help. (laughs) And then we would go inside after we were done, and he'd tell Becky, we did it. Yeah, aw. (laughs) Right? Kid's stealing my glory, you know? (laughs) Not really, but I mean, it was aw. You're like, yeah, it was great, buddy. Like, you know, but Owen didn't do anything. He couldn't contribute to it. He 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 didn't add anything to the completion of the project. He had no capacity to do any of that. He can push a mower. He can uh, like two-year-old weed whipping out there, you know. It just it doesn't happen. And like that. Paul says, in taking their eyes off Jesus, they began to live as if the way forward in the Christian life lies in the strength of their own doing. But you're like a three-year-old trying to, you know. do do projects that you have no capacity or power to complete. The way forward in the Christian life does not lie in your own strength. And when you begin to rely on your own strength, it's actually not just, it's not even just like you put the, the Christian life in reverse. What Paul is really saying is that's not the way forward, it's actually the exit ramp out of the Christian life. That's why he goes on in verse 4 and says, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's calling their salvation into question. He's saying, if you are relying in the the flesh and not in the Spirit, you're not in Christ. Everything that we did in those first few weeks or months in Galatians was, was for nothing. It's worthless. It's vain. So it's not just that they are confused They've abandoned the gospel. Which is why Paul is pleading them, them with such strong language. Because he's not given up on them. That's why he says, if indeed it was in vain. He's still holding out hope. He's preaching Jesus Christ to them. You know why? Because preaching Jesus Christ is the power to save sinners. It's the power to keep sinners. You know, you, if, if, I, if I die tomorrow, uh, Jesus will keep building his church as long as the person next Sunday who stands in here is going to preach the gospel. Because the power is not in me or any other leader or any other pastors. The power is in the gospel. And so Paul hasn't given up. He's not like, I'm done with you. He's not canceling the Galatians. He comes back and billboards Jesus. He's like, if indeed it was in vain. They're not a lost cause. He's pleading with them to look to Jesus to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. And he does it to like snap them out of there and transmit with this false gospel. And he says, remember the persecution that you faced when you first heard the gospel with faith. Why does he tie persecution and suffering here in this argument? Well, he's talking he's talking about the Christian how do you become part of God's people? Which is tied to that central question, how does God save sinners? Right? When God saves sinners, he gives them the Holy Spirit. What also happens when God saves sinners? They start following a Savior that the world hated and killed. And if they hated Him, they're going to hate you. So just like receiving the Spirit is part and parcel with the Christian life, so is suffering and persecution. And he says, remember the trials and the persecution you faced when you first came to Jesus? Did that happen because of circumcision or food laws? because you heard by faith and trusted in Jesus. He says you were uncircumcised bacon eaters who, hated, who were hated by your neighbors because you started looking to Christ and gave up all your false gods. That was proof you were part of God's people. The moment Jesus, uh, Jesus, you beheld Jesus with the eyes of faith and him crucified, in that moment, you were part of God's people and then you got the Spirit, and you started facing persecution. Was that in vain? Your life in Christ didn't start by cooperation with works. So how will it continue by cooperation with works? God doesn't need you to save you. And that's why Paul then goes on in verse 5 and says this, and this has this really um, become uh, one of my favorite verses in studying Galatians verse 5. Listen to this. Does he who supply supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You know, Paul reminds them of God's Spirit powerful moving and working among them when Jesus Christ was billboarded as crucified before their eyes. And, and in that powerful moving and working Everything they needed, everything, to be justified in God's sight, to then be brought into his kingdom, to live with Christ living in them for him, for his glory, Christ in me, to, to live life with God now and forever. Everything they needed for that was supplied to them by faith. Everything. That word supply means gives everything necessary. Like, completely, totally. Uh, Think about it like this. Maybe some of you do your grocery shopping on Sunday afternoons, and at some point, you're going to go and get your groceries for the week. Think about going to Costco, and not just getting a cart full for the next week or two, because it's Costco, so you get those giant things, you know. You're like, I'm set for a couple weeks, I don't have to do this again. But instead of just getting a cart full for a week or two, they give you the entire store and send it home with you and they do so not because then you swipe your credit card but they're just like "Oh, you're here here you go and they send you home with your cart full and probably like 80 semis full of stuff free and Paul says that's what happened by faith you were needy had nothing nothing in your hands you were dead but God and He gave it all to you free, and now not only is your pantry stocked, but so is your fridge and your cupboard and your freezers and your garage and your basement and your closets and your drawer and your attics and your yard and your shed. And you're like the you're like everyone thinks in the neighborhood you're a hoarder now because you got all these things like going like you'll never need anything for the rest of your life. You're like that guy's the ultimate prepper, you know? Like he just lost his mind. But it's Jesus, Jesus. You got everything you need. But then, the next day, you're like, I'm going to start sending a check back to Costco for the things I take out of my pantry. That's what Paul says the Galatians are doing. You got everything supplied that you need, and you got it free. And for some reason, you got out your checkbook and started writing checks back to them. Like, that, that you could give something in this free gift that you got, instead of just living, living in it. That's the image Paul gives. That living the Christian life by any means other than faith abandons the only way of salvation. And it's foolish. What would your friends think if you walked home with the, with the lottery of winning Costco and then they saw you scribbling out a check for it? You're like, did, did they send you a bill? And you're like, no, I got it for free yesterday. What... <laughs> What would they call you? (laughs) I'm pretty sure they wouldn't just say, oh, foolish person. And that's what so much of us do. Man, we've been supplied with everything we need, not just for salvation, but to keep going. And that's the how does God save sinners? And the Judaizers are like, okay, you need faith. How are you going to stay saved? How are you going to make sure? You've got to help God out. No, He supplied everything. I love that word, supplies. Because it addresses everything. This afternoon or tonight when you put your head on your pillow, and instead of falling right to sleep, the fears start swirling. The trials you have start rising in your mind. The problems swirling around you. The things that you're facing just start weighing on you. Living by the Spirit and not the flesh in those moments takes the same steps necessary to begin that life in the Spirit. It's by faith. Faith in the God who provided everything needed for our greatest problem, our sin separating us from Him and the death that sin deserved. And he did it by providing fully in his son and his son's substitutionary, sacrificial, sufficient death that was not earned or even partnered with by us. All that that we needed for that great problem was supplied by faith. And if the God who supplies everything needed for salvation can be trusted with the greatest problem we have, then the God who supplies everything needed can be trusted to provide everything we need to continue living the Christ-in-me life. I don't know what you might face, but the principle is the same. This God supplies everything we need, and if he did so for our greatest problem, then he will do so for every problem. And the pathway to start working through those fears or walking through the problems or, or the trials is not avoiding them, but by the Holy Spirit, grabbing hold of those promises and everything God supplies and walking by faith, that Christ-in-me life. In other words, brothers and sisters, we never move on from the gospel. It's the source of our life and it sustains our life. And the greatest hurdle, obstacle, temptation we face to get us off that never moving on from the gospel kind of life really is self-sufficiency. That the source of my life and the sustaining of my life can be found somewhere in here. But it's actually dying to self and putting my eyes on Jesus who has supplied in himself all I need and has given me his Holy Spirit so that I might live Christ in me daily. That is my life. And so let's lock arms in rehearsing the glories of the gospel so we never foolishly stray into self-sufficiency, but rest in the sufficiency of Jesus, now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we sang earlier off... Often foolish, I strayed. We are prone to wander. Not always away from Christ, but also thinking that we can help him help us. And it's the great temptation that humanity has faced since the garden to not be dependent on God to be God ourselves. And so we long to be your people, not only who have begun the Christian life by the gospel, but daily glory in it and live on it, be sustained by it, be fueled by it, so that our eyes are always filled with Jesus Christ, and that we keep looking to him in the midst of all the things we face. And so we're helped even as we gather around this table, Lord, to remember that we don't have a place at it because we've done something to deserve it. But rather, in fact, we have nothing, and we come empty-handed so that we might grab hold of Christ and all the promises that are yes and amen in Him. And so we pray in these moments that you would release us from our fears, that you would teach us the sufficiency of the supplies we have in Christ Jesus, and the power of the Spirit to help us live on those. And that as we go from here, we would be people who not just proclaim on Sunday mornings, but always the life, death, and resurrection, the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ until the day He returns. And so use these moments around the table together to unite our hearts Uh, in faith, as brothers and sisters, as children looking to the God, both now and forever, to the praise of your glory, we pray. Amen.